1 through 11. Title of the message is, Why Not, Why Not Rather Be Wronged? Why Not Rather Be Wronged? Which Pastor Scott just read. The last time that we were together in 1 Corinthians, we saw just how important it is to address sin, enact church discipline, and to be quick and thoughtful about those things. By the way, side note, um, I did not upload to Sermon Audio or to our website the last sermon that I preached in 1 Corinthians 6 um, because of the nature of some of the things that I shared from the pulpit. I didn't want to take a chance on anyone who was either part of those ministry narratives or close to the people in those uh, narratives to have to relive those memories that that I was um, bringing forth from the pulpit. So a lot of those people that were part of our ministry at that time still listen to our sermons today. And so I didn't post it. And if you want it, though, you can email me and I will... I'll fire you over a link to it. Okay, back to our text. If you are sporting one of um, the most common English Bibles this morning, then the heading, okay, atop 1 Corinthians 6, will say something like this. It'll say, lawsuits against believers or do not take believers to court. Something of that nature. I think that the heading should say, strife and conflict shouldn't have happened in the first place. And we're going to take, uh, take it a step further and examine why it shouldn't have happened in the first place and how to keep it, to keep it from happening to us. Now, what we have here beginning in Chapter 6, are Christians at Corinth suing one another before pagan judges in Roman courts. And Paul says this to them in verse 7, if you want to follow along. I'm, I've um, ad-libbed some things here. He says, the very fact that you have a lawsuit against your brother shows that you are already defeated. Then he says, why not rather be defrauded or wronged or cheated? Why not rather be wronged and suffer wrong than bring strife and contention and fighting? Now, these statements and these rhetorical questions that Paul is putting forth uh, to, to the Corinthians aren't something new. They haven't originated with Paul. If you look at Matthew, you don't have to turn there, but if you like, you can. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 40, it was Jesus who said, If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 41, Whoever forces you to go one mile Go with him too. Give to him who asks of you 
and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Then, of course, in verse 44, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus also tells us in Matthew 5, verses 22 through 26, that if your brother has something against you, you are to go to that brother or sister and attempt to resolve the matter. If not, Jesus said that your adversary might hand you over to the judge and you might be thrown into prison. The short of it is that there shouldn't be any strife in the body of Christ. Now, remember our last sermon, we looked at Matthew 18, and we looked at verse 15 in Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault in private, first between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, praise God. You've won your brother over, Jesus said. How do we get there, though, church? How do we bring ourselves to a place where, despite all of our tendencies to personify total depravity, we instead become willing to allow our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to wrong us. How do we get there? How do we arrive at a place where we can also go the extra mile with them and even pray for them as they wrong us, cheat us, and defraud us? Paul says, how do we get there, church? Well, for some people, it's difficult, very difficult. Like Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 3, right after Paul tells the Philippians to be of one mind and one accord, he says, let nothing be done, nothing be done through strife or conceit, but in humility or lowliness of mind, esteem others as better or more important than yourself. The key here is humility. Humility and lowliness of mind. That's how we get to a place where we would rather allow our brothers to defraud us or cheat us rather than fight with them. It's no coinky dink that immediately following this scripture that I read, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He is our image that although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself, took on the form of a bondservant in the likeness of men and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, if you set your mind on being like Jesus, walking as he walked, thinking as he thought, following his example, then you will have a much 
much easier time forgiving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you certainly won't even consider taking them to court. I can't stress this enough, that this is a matter of the mind. Now, hear me out on that for a minute. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, God gave them over. Who did he give over? Unrighteous men, but not just any unrighteous men, unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God gave them over to a reprobate and degenerate mind because they did not retain God in their thinking. They did not retain God in their knowledge. They stopped thinking about God and the things of God. They didn't retain God in their minds. And this resulted in them becoming carnal. How? Well, they became deaf to their conscience. They became deaf to the law that God had written upon their hearts. And instead of relishing that gift, they squandered it away by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1, 18. That which was known about God was evident to them, Paul said, verse 20. They exchanged that truth of God for a lie. Romans 1, 25. They refused to retain their knowledge of God in their mind and their knowledge of godly truths. Church, do you want to be about the mindset whereby you can genuinely conclude that it's better for you to be defrauded by another brother or sister in Christ than it is to duke it out with them in an argument or in a court? Do you want to be like that? Do you want to be able to do that? I hope so. I wouldn't think that you would be here this morning if you didn't. If you want to do that, folks, you must, must, must renew your mind daily with Scripture and prayer. Romans 12, 2. Thou wilt, thou wilt I keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah 26, 3. Our hearts and minds should always be focused on the Lord and on his people, the church. Let the word of God, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness. Doesn't say singing with complaining and mumbling and grumbling. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Colossians 3.16. So let's 
review briefly so far where we are. I asked you, do you want to avoid strife and contention with your Christian brothers and sisters? And especially avoid the kind of strife that would make them want to sue you. Then set your mind to understand that it is better for the body of Christ and especially for those on the outside looking in. It is better to rather be cheated and suffer wrong than it is to fight with another believer, whether it be in person or in court or any way else for that matter. It drags Christ's name through the mud. It drags the church's name through the mud. Go the extra mile, folks. It's not that hard. It really isn't. Give them the shirt off your back if they want it. It's not that hard. It just entails swallowing your pride. Pray for them and give the situation to the Lord so that Christ's name isn't maligned by those unchurched and unsaved that we claim we want them to have Christ, but we live before them many times like pagans or, or even we live worse than they do. That's the first thing. Remember, we're, we're still reviewing a little bit here. Second thing, how do you get to that place? Remember, I asked that question. You get there by having the same mind as Christ. Paul said in Philippians, remember? You get there by having a low opinion of yourself and by assuming that others are better than you. That's what Paul says, okay? You get there by having a low opinion of yourself and by assuming other people are better than you. Yeah, it's the complete opposite of what the world teaches us. Complete opposite. The world says that you should have a high opinion of yourself and that everyone should cater to you. Not so for the Christian. The Christian should never, ever be accused of being a narcissist. Never. The third thing that we need to do to obtain and retain this mind of Christ is to obtain and retain a knowledge of Christ in our minds. Let me say that again. Okay. Third thing that we need to do is obtain and retain this mind of Christ and to obtain and retain a knowledge of Christ in our minds. That means that we renew our minds each day with the word of God and prayer. This is how we come to know our Christ and have and retain a knowledge of who he is in us and who we are in him. I have a question. How can you possibly 
know Christ unless you commune with him in prayer. How can you possibly retain a knowledge of Christ unless you study and meditate on who he is as scripture teaches? Scripture is the blueprint. It defines who Christ is. Yet we don't read our Bibles. If you want to be conformed to the image of Jesus, you got to read what Jesus did, said, does. And folks, we need to renew our minds more than once a day with the word of God in prayer. We have this mindset in American Christianity. Well, I did my devotions this morning. I'm done for the day. Spent 10 minutes praying and, and reading and good for the day. No, not good for the day. We went over this before when we studied the book of Acts. If you remember, history teaches us plainly that Christians from the book of Acts onward got in the word and in prayer more than once a day. They began praying three times a day right out of the chute because that's how many times a day the Jews pray. And remember, Christianity was seen as a fulfillment of Judaism in the very beginning of the church. So they did what, what they had always done. They prayed three times a day. By the end of the first century, Christians had set hours whereby they stopped what they were doing and prayed at 9 a.m., 12 p.m., and 3 p.m. Do you remember Peter praying on the roof, kill and eat? Remember that? 3 p.m. Is it 3 p.m.? I think so. Okay. Anyway, today, committed Eastern Orthodox Christians and Roman Catholic priests and nuns and some lay Christians in those faith traditions pray the liturgy of the hours, the divine office, seven times a day. I'm not saying or suggesting that you pray or read your Bible seven times a day or that you become Orthodox or Catholic. I'm not saying that. I am simply trying to get you to see that one time of day for prayer and scripture meditation, Bible reading wasn't even on their radar. Was I mean, never was there. They would have never conceded that praying once a day was enough in their quest to know their Christ and have the same mind that was in him as the Apostle Paul says. And we've talked many times about how the Gospels depict Jesus getting up a great while before it was dark and going off to a lonely place to pray. Six times it's mentioned just in the Gospel of Luke. in the early church from Acts onward, okay? They 
as I said, as an offshoot of Judaism, they, they were still mimicking some of the things that the Jews did in the synagogues, okay? They set goals for themselves as a community. Now, I'm not saying that we need to do that, but I'll give you an example of that, okay? A good example of that is on the back table, the read the Bible through in a year thing we have back there. We do that as a church, although we do it individually, right? We each do it by ourselves, but we also do it as a church. It's healthy for the church. It's healthy for you, and it's healthy for the entire body, this local body of Christ. You know as well as I do that just taking your phone out and pulling up your pocket Bible, pocket New Testament, and reading just two or three verses of Scripture a couple of times a day, maybe three times a day, has a huge positive impact on you. It does on me. I hope it does on you. It's like a medicine that, that heals you from all of the day's ills up to that point in time when you do it. That's why it's good to do it a few times a day to renew your mind, to get rid of the stinking thinking and to get back in front of God. It's like a cold, refreshing bottle of water on a hot summer day. The same goes when you take a prayer break. That's a Bible break that I just talked about, but we should also take several times a day to pray. You don't have to, you know, find a closet, get in a position, get all formal seven times a day. You should be in an attitude of prayer throughout the day. Does Paul say to the Thessalonians, pray unceasingly, pray continually? That means to be in an attitude of prayer throughout the day. It means to always be talking and conversing with the Lord. If you want to be conformed to his image, and if he is your friend and master, Lord, then you should be talking to him throughout your day. If you don't do that, folks, this is, this is the whole point. If you don't do that, you're going to find it very difficult in your life to maintain the mind of Christ and the selflessness of Christ in your heart, in your life, and for our purposes this morning, especially toward your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's going to be much, much harder for you to avoid strife if you are not renewing your mind with scripture and prayer often. Okay. Thus far, we've not only seen in the scriptures that that statement is supported, but I'll also add one other comment based on my 40, 40 years now, I'm getting old, uh, experience as a Christian, and based upon what other very seasoned saints have told me, and that is this, it can't be done any other way. 
I mean, that's the formula. The word in prayer. I remember two weeks ago I said the word prayer and fellowship. That's the formula. It, the formula never changes. And nothing else works. Those are the only things that work. If you find something else that works, then let me know. I'd like to see it. Taking a word and prayer break twice, thrice times a day is absolutely necessary to have the mind of Christ that Paul speaks of here in Philippians and in 1 Corinthians 6. Remember those songs and hymns and spiritual songs that Paul talks about in Colossians 3.16 that I just read a moment ago? Those are also very helpful, but they're also necessary. How are you gonna how are you gonna break into the presence of, of Christ in prayer without first praising him, singing to him, blessing him? in song and hymns and spiritual songs and communicating with each other that way, which is what Paul tells us, tells the the Colossians to do. Again, there's no other way. The early Christians all the way up through the centuries until now, this very moment, regularly recite They regularly sing psalms and praise and worship songs and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord with thankfulness in their heart, just as Paul instructs us. You can find all kinds of great psalms set to music, along with thousands of praise and worship songs right on that little stinking piece of amazing glass in your pocket or your purse. Play them through your car speaker or through your earbuds. Stop making excuses as to why you can't seem to forgive that dastardly, carnal, so-called Christian brother or sister that wronged you. Take it from me. It's much easier to be cheated and to let strife roll off your back when you're praising the Lord in song and you're meditating on his word. It's easier that way. It's much much easier than on your way home from work listening to some pagan talk on the radio about why the Pittsburgh Steeler dropped the ball yesterday. People come to me, they say, I got this, 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 this problem in my life. Okay, well, are you, are you in prayer and are you doing Bible reading? No, I don't have time. Seriously, you don't have time? We have time to listen to all kinds of things. Podcasts, talk radio, all kinds of stuff. But no time to read the Bible and no time to pray. Give me a break. The, the most incredible tool to accomplish this mindset, to avoid this strife, listening to the Bible on audio. Yikes. If you don't like to read, 
or if you're dyslexic, all you got to do is pull up the free Bible on your phone and listen to it. It's amazing. It's absolutely priceless. Yet some of the things that we choose to listen to and watch instead, I just can't understand. I don't get it. If you incorporate these things, these very, very simple things into your life, you will find it much easier to play well with others and to avoid strife and contention in your relationships with people in the body of Christ. Okay, we're almost done, but not quite. Paul has some other very important things for us to grasp here. He's not only making it clear that he doesn't want the Corinthians airing their dirty laundry in public courts, but he is also telling them and us why they shouldn't do such things. Now, in order to fully grasp Paul's agitation with the Corinthians and why he is coming so hard against them with his insistence that they don't take each other to court, you have to understand, you have to know a little bit about how public court was done at this time. Roman legal proceedings at Corinth were held at what is called the Burma, B-E-R-M-A. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Bima, it's Bima, um, which was a raised platform at the center of the city where orators spoke. Ironically, the Bima was first used in synagogues, and it was the Bima that the Torah and the prophets were read from, okay? Not too long after that, the word Bima was and still is the name that the Eastern Orthodox Church call their altar. Now, in Corinth, the Bema was surrounded, picture this, by a courtyard of merchant shops. So pretend you're standing in Market Square in downtown Pittsburgh, surrounded by shops, and that in the middle was this big platform and these benches, and that's where they were holding public court. And a Roman, a Roman uh, proceeding, which is called a tribunal, okay, was always public. And anyone, this was just their culture, anyone passing through the markets could have listened in or even participated in the proceedings. We see something to this effect in Acts 18, 12 through 17. The congregation at Corinth, okay, may have included, may have included some important city officials such as Erastus, the city treasurer who we see in Romans 16.23, whose name archaeologists, okay, happen to find on an inscription at a Corinthian theater, not far from the Corinthian court. Now, couple this very 
public synopsis of a Roman court in a city as large as Corinth, couple that with Paul's previous and very uh, common dichotomy between the worldly and the spiritual realms, okay, like Paul likes to do. He does it in, in our text, 1 Corinthians 2, and he does it in um, 1 Corinthians 5. And you're left with, okay, a slightly cranky Paul, the spiritual father of these Corinthian spiritual children, as he calls them. The other reason uh, that we know why Paul is making a big deal out of this is because of what he says next to the Corinthians. He says, quote, if you Christians can judge the world and angels, how much more should you be able to judge these trivial matters of this life? Now, what in the world does he mean when he says that? You're able to judge the world and angels. Well, Jesus did promise, folks, to enthrone us with him, to participate in the judgment at the consummation of the kingdom. We don't know how that's going to look. We definitely see through a glass darkly there. But nonetheless, it's in the New Testament and the Old, actually. As members of the body of Christ and sharers in his authority, we will participate, not just the Corinthians, but us, in the judgment of the wicked angels and unbelievers. Why then, okay, Paul is saying um, to them, he's saying, you're going to judge angels and the unsaved, unbelievers, but you can't judge some trivial spat between one another in the church. You're Christians. <laughs> You're going to judge angels for crying out loud. Why do I even have to tell you this, Paul is saying. I'm reading between the lines. You above all people should know better, Corinthians. What is wrong with you? You're supposed to take part with Jesus in judging the world and angels, and you can't even solve these simple, trivial, petty matters among yourselves. But instead, you've got to take it to the public, to the streets, to the public court, and embarrass the church and embarrass Christ, brother going to law against brother, and there before, an un before unbelievers, Paul says. He says there's no winner here. You're all defeated from the mere fact that you went to court against each other in the first place. And in doing so, you dishonored the Lord. In other words, as we would say in today's vernacular, they blew their witness. They blew their witness to the unsaved and unchurched. Then in verse 8, Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul could have um, continued with, well, I'll tell you why. It's because of your petty pride, which has already appeared before me, Paul, 53 different ways to Sunday. You couldn't have just let it go for the testimony of the church. 
testimony of Christ. So what I want you to do as we part ways this morning, ask yourself that, if that's you, ask yourself, can I let this go and avoid strife with my brother and sister in Christ? Or do I have to say something? And let me leave you with this. I'm going to remind you. You'll remember a long time ago, I preached a sermon on the tongue. And I quoted an author who wrote a very thin book, Ukrainian author, on the tongue. And he says that before you speak, remember this, um, you, should, you should place four sentries or four soldiers in front of your mouth, the gate to your mouth. He says, Verity is the name of the first soldier. Charity, second one. Necessity, third one. Wisdom, fourth one. Verity, charity, Necessity, wisdom. And you ask yourself, as these four soldiers guard the gate to your tongue, you say, is what I'm about to say to Suzanne true? Verity is true, means truth. Is, is it true? Well, if it isn't, I'm not going to say it. If it is, then it's got to get past the second soldier. Is what I'm about to say to Suzanne True, yeah, it is, but is it loving? Charity means love. Is it loving? No, maybe I should just keep my mouth shut. Or it got past the first soldier, got past the second soldier, and then the third soldier's necessity. Well, yeah, what I, I want to say to Suzanne is true, and it is loving, but is it really necessary for me to say? It's probably not. She might take it the wrong way. No. And then, of course, the fourth soldier is wisdom. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's loving. And yeah, I, I do think it's necessary that I, that I say this to her. But is it wise for me to say it now? Is it wise for me to say it here? Should I maybe wait to a more prudent time? If you get in the habit of thinking before you talk, and I'm talking in the context of strife in the church amongst brothers and sisters, if you get in the habit of asking these four questions, is it true, is it loving, is it necessary, is it wise to say now, you'll find that by the end of the day, you haven't said very much at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is what that's about. Let's pray.